0: running boom of the 70s came during simpler pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galulli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runners' reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era, share their stories, and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runners Reunion podcast. Good afternoon, Runners Reunion listeners. Today is November 28th, uh, a windy day getting ready for the winter, and we are delighted that you're joining us here for another edition of the Runners Reunion podcast. We are now in season three, and this is episode two. Um, Our guest today Um, has a little different profile than everybody that we've uh, since spoken to since the beginning of this podcast. He emigrated, if you will, came over sight unseen from Ireland to Providence College in 1980, graduated from Providence College in 1984, and during his four years there in Providence, not Pawtucket, John, in Providence. Uh, was a member of both the second-place runner-up national cross-country team in 1981 and 1982. As I said, he graduated in 1984 from PC with a BS in uh, business management concentrating in information technology. In 1990, not not that much longer uh, down the road, he and a bunch of his compatriots founded what is known today as one of the seminal and most important road races in Providence, the downtown 5K. And in addition to uh, paying it forward, so to speak, in being a road race organizer and, and a connoisseur, if you will, spent at least seven years coaching at North Kingston High School, where he won at least, if my math is not incorrect, three outdoor state titles. If you haven't figured out who our guest is by now, Welcome to Charlie Breggy. Charlie, thank you for joining us on the Runners Reunion podcast.
1: I'm glad to be with you guys.
0: Well, thank you. Now, I have to ask a question again, because unlike uh, Gorman and Whitney and Galuli here, we come at this running thing from a state, uh, stateside angle. What for you was your first memory of running a race in your formative years?
1: Well, that happened when I was about twelve years of age in Ireland. Uh, my brother Richard, who, uh, who who was into the running, uh, wanted to join a club. So me and my father went along to see Richard run the race. And the organizer of the club came over to us, and he threw me a running singlet and a pair of shorts. So my father explained to him that I was the wrong guy. It was the older guy, my older brother, that he wanted. So Larry McGuill was the guy's name, and Larry was a great character, a fun guy. And he said, no, he says, they're both going to run. So we lined up. The race was in a place called Hagerstown, County Loud, Ireland, about maybe 45 minutes north of Dublin. Oh, uh, once the race went off, there was about 100 kids in it. uh, My brother ran very well. He got sixth place overall, and I ended up in fourth place. It was a bit of a surprise. And then the following week, uh, it was the local championship and I ended up winning it. Got two medals, one for the team and one for an individual. And when you're a 12-year-old kid and you get two medals on the one day, instead of playing for a whole season, you get a soccer medal or whatever. It was a a good thing to do. Yeah. After that, it was all up from there.
0: So was this a a cross-country race or was it...
1: Yeah, cross-country. And in Ireland back then, they do it in age groups, under 12, 14, 16. know 12, you want about maybe three quarters of a mile. You know what I mean? It's not just 5K stuff. It's just basically you run distances based on your age.
0: And and <laughs> this would have been uh, local clubs would have organized it. So at a different yeah. location, different club, yeah. and then, you know, you're moving around. So so this is where I think this is uh, – I, I think this will be of interest to many of us. Uh, yeah. You know, us as well uh, on the, on the podcast here tell us a little bit about that i mean obviously once you start getting some medals that feels good but tell yeah. me a little bit more tell us a little bit more about that whole club atmosphere which sounds like you probably gravitated to right away after that initial success
1: well i'm still a member of the club i actually ran a race last year <laughs> i ran the loud novice which is you know inners and enders like myself <laughs> but anyway um Club system over there is really remarkable and back in the 1970s nobody had any money in Ireland in the 1970s the club would raise money through raffles and draws and any way they could there was one gentleman, there was always one gentleman in each club that was a, like a figurehead that was really into athletics. and it, it, I, came, I ran with a club for a village called Dunlear in County Loud, and there was about 50,000 people living in the village but it, this man was so passionate about running Again, sorry, McGill. He had about 350 people signed up in the club. Think about it: over 33% more than the uh, than the population of the village itself. And we had a great club structure. Um, you know, training Tuesday and Thursday night. Um, you no, know, I I ran for the club all the way up. to, like, um, to the states and ran in every age group and the great friendships. You know, a lot of kids started off on the 12 and went all the way through. Not like over here where a club. It's very hard to find people in a club. For a lifetime they are some but usually with people moving around so much it changes we, we never really changed and was just looked like maybe 15 clubs in our small area and our area was only maybe probably a quarter the size of uh, rhode island sure. but every yeah. club had senior athletes junior athletes novice athletes uh, men and women and every age group it was typical of 100 kids in a in a club i mean that was pretty normal but so did... we'd have races every week cross country okay. and and track no indoor no indoor okay
0: um would there have been was there a sense of family because you said you have senior you know senior athletes and you have junior 100 yeah,
1: yeah. On it, you so, hit it right in the head there yeah the, uh, give us a
0: sense
2: of that what, yeah. what was that what well, that would have
1: well, been like we would go like when i got to about 16 i'd go out and run with the seniors because i was able to run with them but we'd, go out, we'd run maybe eight miles and it's black dark there'd be no lights on the road we run out the but we ran on dark roads even with no moonlight somehow we figured yeah. out how to run in the dark when we come back you know we'd lit a fire in an old, an old house that we used used to rent and we'd uh, light a fire and make the tea and biscuits and sandwiches and hang around for about an hour after practice mm-hmm. shooting the breeze bragging the hell out of each other slagging each other and then bragging about how we we're going to do the following sunday who's going to do what you know <laughs> oh so, yes and then Larry McGuill, he was always there. He didn't run himself, uh, but he'd be there and he'd be poking the, the guys and uh, getting them all riled up. And There was great excitement there in the club. And yes, when we go to race, we'd travel together on a bus. We'd warm up together. We'd warm down together. And then every, you know, every year, we'd have an annual get-together, like a mm. dinner, like a dinner dance, and there'd be a dance after it. And that's when all the families would come. I mean, oh, your mother okay. and father would come with your brothers and sisters. And you could have four or five hundred people at one of these events.
0: Would would you say? Would it be fair to say? Um, and and maybe it's not you, but as a general idea, that it would be possible for a youngster, young person, twelve year old, thirteen year old, yeah. to find role models, uh, pretty cleanly and clearly in the club structure because of you know as a, a kind of
1: yeah well you know most run us are our role models in my view, because, you know, most of them are clean living, uh, look after themselves. Uh, well, I don't work. know about the
0: beer. Hold on here. Hold on <laughs> here, Charlie.
1: <laughs> That's uh, after, you know, oh, they okay. work, all right. they look after the families. And uh, they just, I, I just think the people in the running community are all great people. I've never, well, I've seen a couple of suppose, but not too many. But most of yep. the people are great, great people in the running community. And so give us a little sense, if you would.
0: So you had some great initial access, success. And as a 12, 13 year old, the idea of medals, I mean, that would keep me coming back. I could totally see that.
1: It didn't in it didn't the beginning. But then no. again, like all young, young lads in Ireland and probably the same here in America, let's face it, everyone's got a bit of an ego. And anyone that denies it, I call them a liar because that's one of the reasons you run. You want to be number one. And okay. I don't care what anyone says, ego has a big drive on it too. We like to win, we like mm-hmm. to be successful. Yeah. In Ireland, we. It was a very poor country when I was growing up, but we were, we were on our bare feet. We had no spikes, or I mean, training shoes were a pair. You know, I and mean, were a pair of hard plastic soles on them. You know how we didn't get injured more? I don't know. But mm. most of the time, I did train on grass at home on our farm. I'd run around the fields in my bare feet, and uh, you know, and that's what every kid did. You know, and when you come every old, now and then, you get a bit of snow. We were out there on our bare feet. You know, we wear regular oh. shoes, and then before the race, we pop out and run around the race on our bare feet. Well, As a matter of fact, uh, when I, I ran for the Irish schools over in England, uh, when I was under 17, those are schools international, mm-hmm. and they had to change the course, because me and another guy on the Irish team were wet in our bare feet, and there was glass in one section of the course, so they had to change the course for us. We had no Whoa. spikes.
0: Whoa! Oh, <laughs> yeah. my gosh.
1: Well, that's that's a fact. It.
0: You you wouldn't see that today. They would just say tough luck. I mean, (laughs) no,
1: they'd lock the parents up for cruelty, wouldn't they?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. But that's the way it was. You know. Yeah, that's the way it was. So okay. So at seventeen, you're already traveling outside of country. I mean, yes, Yes. it's UK, but you're you know you're traveling down uh, that way, Um, and you are continuing to to progress. Now, the other thing, uh, in full confession, I have a sister who lives in the UK. And so we have I have a nephew. I don't understand the English schooling system, so I'm not even going to pretend to try to understand the Irish schooling system.
1: It's very similar.
0: Okay. Okay. So but at age 17, you're kind of probably getting towards the end of, you know, mandatory schooling. Is that about right when you were at that under 17?
1: Yeah, I well, I did what we call a leaving certificate, uh, which would be I think I was 17 when I got out of high school, and then I, okay. became a, I became a carpenter. You know what I mean? I went to, back then when I was growing up, the unemployment rate for kids under 25 years of age was 50%. It was, it was simply no job. Five,
0: zero percent? Fifty?
1: Yes. 50. Yes. That's, that's how bad it was. So I actually got into it. I was going to start a college program, and then just before I started, I got a job to be, I an offer to be an apprentice carpenter, so that's the route I went. I, it was a job. I mean, there's too many guys in Ireland with college degrees and no job, you know, at least a carpenter, you would get some work.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's what I did.
0: Okay. And then, um, but you were running as, Oh you...
1: yeah, I kept running. I, even when I was in Dublin, I used to, uh, you know, run into work with a backpack on me and run at lunchtime and then run in the evening home. So okay. I mean, my last job was in Dublin. and I had a very supportive uh, gentleman who, who helped me out greatly. Um he was, his name was Val Ledwit and he had a company. And he also liked to run in the business houses races. That's corporate races. There's an organization in Ireland uh, for operations, and they have, I mean, companies, and they have their own federation. Like Dublin City Marathon, for example, is run by the business houses. Oh, and that's the, that's the organization that runs all the corporate races in Ireland. Okay. So I ran for an organisation that was illegal under the IAAF back then as World Athletics, simply because there was a boundary rule that meant that uh, if you, my federation in Ireland was called the NACA National Athletic and Cycling Association, and very quickly, um, Ireland used to be represent the entire island of Ireland. Then in 1934, um, the IAAF, with a little help from Britain, split the country between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. For about eight years, there was no representation in Ireland in the Olympics. Then some people in the south of Ireland succumbed to the IAF and started a new federation and became members of the IAF. However, NACA existed all the way from the 30s up until 1999. And up Mm -hmm. until then, uh, up until 1988, I wasn't allowed to run in the world cross country if I made the team.
0: Oh, interesting. OK, because so we had, and the to, I had to run when
1: I ran races in Europe. It was mostly with uh, an organization called the CSIT, which was actually a socialist organization. <laughs> I was close to communists. The communist <laughs> countries would accept us. So we would run whenever we could with those organizations.
0: I, I got to ask you about Dublin. Did you ever have opportunity to run on that grass track at University College Dublin?
1: I did. I did. At Trinity, I, I, I ran there once. It okay. uh, was a fellow called Noel Carroll, who was a famous uh, runner. He, that was his home ground, I believe. But I did get run it once, and it was grass, and you didn't need spikes.
0: It's gorgeous. And, what a gorgeous carpet. By the way, I did get
1: a pair of spikes. The Christian brother bought me a pair of spikes for the international school's race, the qualifying race, in 1977. So I wore the spikes, and I don't know whether they helped me or not, but I wore them anyway. And I took them off at the end of the race to warmed down. He came back for my spikes after I warmed down, and somebody stole them. Yep. And that was so, the end of the spikes for another year.
0: <laughs> oh, God. So it, it help us now thread the needle between growing success. Is it, it sounds like
1: primarily cross country, maybe a little bit of track mixed in there, but mostly cross yeah, country. Yeah, mostly cross country. Like, um, yeah. like all the kids were going on scholarships. I, I ran the schools, I was able to compete and beat them you know what i mean yeah. and yeah. They, they can tell you that but um because of my loyalty to my club i refused to change over because like you brought up earlier was family you know what i mean it, it would be an awful thing for me to do to leave the people that had helped me get all the way up where i was and look after me as an athlete i just got loyalty do it. right it's
0: loyalty right loyalty
1: and, and friendship i mean yeah yeah i mentioned larry mcgill was like a second father to me you know i mean okay. i had many meals in his house i had in my own house so as far as representing Ireland, it didn't mean that much to me. Friendship meant more, you know. And besides, you know, you had to be, I mean, could I made a, could I have made a few teams? Absolutely, I could have made a few cross-country teams for World props. But that didn't bother me. Okay. But in the end, uh, I worked for this team in Dublin, the Business Houses. That's where I, would, I think I was found out then because I was run, in the Business Houses races, I was able to run against the other organization, which was called the BLE. Okay. Now, they actually had a rule in the IAF. I, I don't know if it still exists, but the IAF had a rule that you could not compete against athletes that were not members of the IAAF member. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? So we couldn't even compete against each other. In the schools and the business houses, that was a separate entity. We could compete against each other. Interesting. And the last race I ran, one of the last races I ran was in Dublin. It was a business house race. And I got second place, but the guy that won it was on the Irish international team. He's like the third four and fourth man on the team. And he beat me on the sprint at the finish. And there was another young athlete. Uh, I know was his uh, name. He was at Villanova. I mean, he was one of the top recruits from Ireland to Villanova. And he was a minute and a half behind me or so. So ah, okay. the, the next week, I started getting the calls from Providence College. So that race was a breakthrough race.
2: So, yeah, so,
0: so when was, did it, was it, uh, Amato, was that your coach or the.
1: That's correct. So,
0: so did talk to us a little bit. It's not, I mean, recruiting in this country back in the day was, yeah, you'd have a bunch of phone calls and if you, you know, uh, you might see the coach at a race, but this is a little different. There's a big pond in, in between you. Um, right. between PC and, and, and Dublin. how So talk to us a little bit about, let's call it a courtship for the for lack of a better term. Was he the only one or were you getting feelers from Villanova and and uh, Jumbo and all that kind of stuff?
1: Well, what uh, happened with me was uh, when I was working as a carpenter in the building side, as I told you my boss hired all these runners. I mean, these yeah. guys represented, my team over there represented Ireland at the Manufacturer's Hanover down in New York. Remember that uh. ticket and relay we had? yeah okay. my, my brother was on the team when he when they came over and i was on the rhode island team so what happened then was uh, i was working with a fella called Porik keen who's now since passed and Porik and me were partners on the building side we worked together we worked on price work meaning whatever work we did we got paid at the end of the week and we split it 50 50. so Porik was in the other organization that was legal and where one day he yelled at after that race and that I finished second to this uh this Ezio yeah, Cameron's Ash- Ash- name. Yeah, yeah. So um Park the next day I started swearing at me and said, hoping that was being stupid, that I could go I was wasting my time in Ireland, I should go to America. And I said I'm not gonna change organization. And then he pointed out to me, you don't have to, because the NCAs is a separate entity. They're not affiliated to the IAF. But I was always told by people on the other side, oh, you have to be in our organization to go oh, to America.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: It was a net right lot. as the time, another lie they told me was when I finished touring in the Irish schools, top seven represent Ireland. I was toured overall. Yeah, they told me, uh, they left me off the team. And it was my uh, my school teacher went up and asked him why. And he said, well, he's overage. And I said, no, he's not. And they, and then when I told them my age, was was oh, we thought you were overage. I said, you never asked me. That's how vicious it was. It really was vicious. But anyway, Parry uh, introduced me to, uh, a gentleman called Laro Bourne from Tondly Farriers, one of the top clubs in Ireland, if not the top male most times. time. But anyway, um, uh, Laro Bourne was a good man and he didn't care what my background was. He cared about athletes as did Parry Keen. They said they would help me get to the States. So, as I said, a week earlier, I ran that race. It was pretty impressive, I, I guess. And, uh, the thing I know is, I was having uh, lunch with uh, Bob Amado at the Aggression Motel on O'Connell Street in Dublin. So he came funny over. Story. Before so we went he in. He came over. Okay. He came over, yeah. yeah. But before we went in, and I'll tell this to Bob next time I see him, but before he came over, we opened we up to the Aggression Motel myself and this guy called Charlie Keen. Keen. Boric warned me. Uh, he said, Charlie, before you go in there, he says, now, if you ask you what you want to drink, you say orange juice. Do not say a pint. You know, so, so we went in and he he asked the question, "What would you like to drink?" And I said, "I'll have an orange juice." And he says, "Oh, good, I like to see that." You know, so wow, that's
0: After awesome. after
1: he after he left, me and Pori had a punt.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. That just to set the record straight. Yes, <laughs> just to be
1: honest. to be honest.
0: So, uh, do you remember what time of year this was? Um, was it uh, fall, I, spring, or you know,
1: it, it was actually July. Okay, and I and you know. Orrick asked me where I wanted to go and all that because he, they they had the connection. But John Tracy uh, just won two world cross countries and uh, you know, seventy nine
0: and eighty, right?
1: Yes. Even though we were different federations, and John was a whole lot faster and quicker than I was, obviously. But he, I mean, we all looked up to him in Ireland. He was like uh, Larry Borden, you yeah. guys up in Boston, you know. He, yeah, yeah. John Ireland doesn't have much success, you know. So when he won two world cross countries, and I, I was told that. They thought I was good enough to go to Providence. Then I said, "That's where I'm. Going. Oh, I want to run with that guy." And then uh, what happened? It was July because he, he already had picked another athlete who backed out. And the other athlete's name was a chap from England called Nicky Leakes, who was a superb athlete. I met Nicky at a race in, in Belgium one time, ran together. But he was uh, one of the top English guys. made made a world cross country winning team. I think he might have won the English Juniors, and he was a tough athlete in England throughout his life. But he backed out, and there was an opening, and, and that's how I slipped in. I guess a little bit of luck. The timing was good.
0: Uh, yeah, between first contact from Coach Amato yeah. and you arriving in Providence, how much time elapsed?
1: Uh, July, August, two months. I came Whoa. over in September. July, I, he met me in Dublin and told me he wanted me to come along with him. And uh, August, end of August, I flew over and got there and end of August, I think it was.
0: Wow. That's pretty, that's a am- well, and But you had mentioned that opportunity was tough, uh, you know, in Ireland at the time and this was really a
1: chance to spread yeah. wings in I a mean, lot of different ways. Yeah. The choice was simple. Do I keep banging the hammer for the rest of my life or take a chance in this one opportunity that came my way? You know, I always believe. If a good opportunity comes at you and it looks good, try it. And yep. if it's not good, then walk away.
0: All right, John, you want to get in here.
2: So, Charlie, when you uh, did get to Providence, did you know all of the guys on, from, on the cross-country team from Ireland? And I'm sure you knew Jeff, but um, who he was. But did you, know, did you know all of them? You know, Brendan, Richard? No,
1: I, I, I didn't know all of them, but obviously I knew John yeah. Tracy. And, uh, I'll be honest, I, I knew Jeff Smith because every weekend Jeff was racing on television on BBC. And Jeff was a phenomenal athlete who only started when he was 21 years of age. Jeff didn't run. He was playing soccer like I was. But, um, he, um, he, he, he was on TV all the time. So there was two Jeff Smiths. So there was a Barry Smith and a Jeff Smith. And then when I heard Jeff Smith was coming over, I said, whoa, you know, I'm watching these guys on television, you know, and I'm not on television. I wasn't that good. <laughs> So um, it's a task of going to train with these guys. Tracy and Brendan. Brendan Quinn invited me down to his home about uh, two or three weeks before I went over. I went down to... uh, I had an old motorcycle, an old English motorcycle. I had long hair and leather jacket and all that kind of stuff. That's a typical athlete. And uh, I drove down to see Brendan, you know. I think Brendan was a bit shocked when he saw him standing at the door. (laughs) But he was a a great host and uh, they... They took me out for a run on the Sunday morning and they ran 10 miles with Jerry Deegan, you know, Jerry Vegan Jerry was second in national NCAAs at one time, great runner had to, uh, pity he didn't, couldn't have kept going at it in America, but he had to go home because I think his father got ill uh, Brendan was there, Ray was there and I forget, John wasn't there, but he took me out for a 10 mile, and I think it was the fastest 10 mile I'd ever run up to that time I was a little bit <laughs> concerned then but Once you once you get over to America and I started training with Jeff Smith, Jeff Smith was all the English trainers. The English way of training compared to the Irish was day and night. The English guys were like flat out all the way, and the Irish guys were slow.
0: Okay, so we've made the we've we've puddle jumped. We've gone from the other side. Now we're in the states. All of you. You know, I don't know how worldly you all are. I mean, maybe you've maybe you've been on planes before or well, you had to because you had to get to you know, Europe mm-hmm. and all of that. Yeah. But you're all now thrown together um, in Providence, uh, you know, at this school. You've we've talked a little bit about the ego that any athlete has. How did that all sort itself out? in what could have been a real hyper repetitive environment and different training models and all of that give, give us a little flavor if you would
1: well when we were in providence uh well the first person i met Bob introduced me to jeff you know what i mean i was just like starstruck like i mean this guy I just watched him the last six months winning races in england and all over europe and uh you know jeff was down there he was a fireman i told him i was a carpenter and then the coach gave us a blanket and a pillow and we, checked into our rooms and we went up to have supper and Jeff said he cared there was a bar room somewhere on campus and I said that sounds good so that was the first time we closed a bar down together first <laughs> day basically. first day yeah we, we, we didn't know we were. he was out of school for 10 years I was out of school for 4 years and mm, okay. we didn't know what this college thing was all about so I remember the first test we took um, we uh, both flunked it, it was a math test and I got Jeff got 40 percent and I got 20 percent but the funny part was I showed Jeff what to do <laughs> so, <laughs> so we both went back to the bar after that we thought that was it we wouldn't be sent home for being stupid you know mm-hmm. but then one of the guys yes. the track told us was tracking us with something called uh, what was it someone that could help us a tutor mm-hmm. and and of course the track guys are the smartest guys in school the american kids were the smartest ones so we had two tutors and they were brilliant they showed us the real and okay. after, I remember the second semester, I was injured like a 4A, thanks to their help. So me and Jeff, we worked hard in school, don't get me wrong. We, we didn't, no, no, we no, trained yeah. hard, we studied hard. We did the library every night, me and Jeff, because uh, we wanted to do well. and We wanted, to, you know, we didn't want to go back to being a fireman and the carpenter, let's go that way. Sure,
0: sure. And I, as
1: far I as the rest of the guys know. goes, um, no, the, the Irish and English, was half the team was the Irish, half was English. I remember the second year I was there. Jeff, I mean uh, John Doherty and Steve Bing arrived, and those oh two guys God. I knew. It was unbelievable. Wow! Now for that we had the two black brothers, Richard Mulligan and Richard O'Flynn. I mean the team was awesome. I mean, okay. So I was I'm happy just interu- to get in the top seven.
0: I'm going to interrupt you right there. Go so on. I could I could totally foresee and and you know uh, give us a color out. I could totally foresee. That you could easily leave the race effort on the training grounds. In other words, you could probably kill each other six days out of the week and then wind up being dead as doornails on on the on the seventh day. How did you all figure this out? How did you figure out um, amongst you again, egos and the quality, clearly? How did you figure out, you know, what you needed to do? Was that a motto? Was it how how did it all work? Well-
1: yeah, Bob, Bob wasn't very much a hands-on type of guy. You know what I mean? I think, you know, he was a sprinter and he was a science teacher. Mm, okay. Um, where Bob's strength, in my opinion, was the way he treated us. You know what I mean? Okay. When we went to our base, we stayed in top-class hotels. He gave us enough money to buy food, and when it wasn't, we charged us in a room. So it was fine. And uh, as far as travel, any time of a game was possible. Even, I remember he used to hire a private jet and send us to some races. Wow. I mean, so I he took great so. care of us that way. Um, However, on the the, the training end of it, I would have to say most of the training came from among the athletes ourselves. I was wondering about that. Yeah, Yeah. Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff uh, Smith, Steve Pins, John Barhy, animals to train. They just hammered it, you know. Uh, And the Irish guys uh, were much more pulled back. And John Tracy was probably the slowest of the top athletes. John, John just went easy, you know. But John did his training at the right time and. He was very methodical about the whole thing. He knew what he was doing. He knew his body. And he could get, he had, John had his own training. Then Jeff, I just roped in with Jeff because we're friends. I and mean, I'll be honest, for the first three months, it was eyeballs out just to hang in with Jeff. But then I started to get the payoff. from Because I only ran about six miles a day before I came over here. Yeah. And then once I moved up to like 80, 90 miles a week, I did pay the price uh, indoor because I got hurt for like uh, 10, 10 weeks. I missed the outdoor pretty much the first season. But after a year or so running with Jeff, I got into the groove. And then after that, I was able to keep trapping the times.
0: Time. So is it was it one of those things that, I mean, was there like an informal runners? Hey, a bunch of us are going to do this. You know, how many of you want to go with us? I mean, was it even that exactly.
1: far? Is that exactly. kind of how it was? Yeah. Yeah. And okay. When I was there, Steve Binns and Paul Maloney, they did their thing. Me and Jeff did our thing. And then Ray, Jimmy Fallon, and uh, Brendan Quinn did their thing. And was, on a Sunday, we used to go for a, an 18-mile run and up to 22-mile run, a group run. we do that together. Okay, okay. Okay, so that was one time. When, and be, when we got on those runs, we'd have all these other guys joining us, like people like, I can recall, John Gregorio used to do a couple of training on a Sunday. He'd go for the Sunday run. You would have Mick O'Shea, John Tracy, um uh, Alistair Craig, he he was in town. Um, and there was a few more guys as well. Paul Craig was in there as well. He was from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So we'd have about 20 guys running. And I, I'm telling you, <laughs> the talent there. I was in the second half of it, but just to look, just to run to those guys. How could you not improve or want to keep going? You know, it was fantastic. it was a great era.
0: I, I was I was trying to figure out, you know, assuming that you had all these training groups, how did one uh, especially again, because Irish clubs, English clubs, something yeah. similar in that regard. Mm-hmm. This this notion of uh, camaraderie, yeah, you know, if if you've got three or you know three or four different kind of training methodologies, the only time you're together outside of races is the long run, kind of.
1: Pretty much. So, pretty much.
0: You know, so, so how did you have, what would you say was the secret of success? So that you guys weren't going left and right and up and down and and you know everybody kind of doing their own thing. What was the what was the um, um, I'm searching for the word. Um, what was what made it possible to be glued together to do what you needed to do? Say at NCAA's end cross for example.
1: Well, I, I think you have to give the credit to Paul Mato for his recruiting. Okay. I mean, let's face it. I mean, if you can recruit guys that are just coming back from the Olympics, as opposed to a guy a seventeen-year-old coming out of school, uh, you're, you're going to have a better team. And okay. uh, Bob, uh, he did great recruiting, and and I, and I think a lot of it is owed to the fact that uh, John Tracy won two World Cross countries. Providence okay. was on the map overnight. You know, when I remember watching John Tracy in Glasgow winning the fourth of his two World Cross, and I I, I didn't know who this guy was, but I realized what the race was, and I watched it every year. And yep. that was such an inspiration to me, and I'm sure it was to all the other guys as well. And, you know, even English guys, I think, you know, looked up to John, to a degree, you know what You so I mean? So respect. It was, it was respect, yeah, because when you see, if, if someone can win the world cross-country, going to Providence College, then there must be something happening there. happening there, And then what it evolved into was just all these elite athletes came from all over England and Ireland, and as you know, the higher standard in the group, the whole group Got came it. from it. So Charlie, that was the kind of glue you're talking about. Yeah. And there was no so one Charlie's animosity. All the guys all the guys were rooting for each other. Everybody was happy to see it oh, okay. do well. And that was the good part of it. So Charlie, um, when you were there and you know you had
2: your racing schedule, training schedule, and everything, and in the in the background on the weekends, you know, there's some road races and some of the road races you know had money and no, john, how, you can't how, go there, how no, did you john. manage how did you manage that and then how did you manage it that's you know to find out if one of your teammates was going or how did that all work out i mean did you did you have to like say no i can't do the road race you know i have to
1: do this or yeah you know, are you talking about college years or college, college? years yeah like, well i'll have to take the fifth on that one john
0: statue of limitations but i
2: hear you yeah
1: <laughs> after after it we'd have After, other, yeah no. I know
2: about afterwards but during <laughs> yeah. but during did you participate much in the road races or did you like have to I would run road races in you're... the summer
1: in the summer I would run road races yeah yeah
2: mm-hmm. it, it we'll leave it so what that. about what about, we'll what leave it about at that. like going to races that were you know knowing that you know somebody was going to be there you know and you say ah, you know I you know some people would call it ducking you
1: know no no, ducking. no we, didn't, we didn't duck. You know, we... I don't know if you remember, but like, runs like uh, and puff races. You know what I mean. Mm. But um, no, we didn't die. In the end, we all we all we all did okay. A two-time
0: on a on a two-time NCAA cross country uh, runners-up team, eighty-one and eighty-two. If
1: I got yes,
0: yeah.
1: Um, was it and 82? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, was eighty-one and eighty-two? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was eighty-one, eighty-two because the age. The age group thing got me for my final year. I could not run for Providence College on my final year. Okay. So I started, you know, racing on my own then in 83, ah. Starting after after the I end of the I, I ran three years for Providence. The fourth year I was overage. Overage. And okay. Jeff was overage from day one. But I have to give credit to Providence College and Dave Gavin and Coach Amado because that ruling came down, right? The final ruling came down. We coach thought we were gonna be grandfathered because the rule did not take effect until after we were recruited, but they they backdated it. So I remember uh, David and Coach Amala telling me and Jeff that not to worry, you guys have left your jobs in Ireland and uh, you come over to America and we're going to give you a four-year ride. Jeff had a four-year ride and really didn't have to run for the college at all, which was a fantastic thing for an athlete, yet got all the benefits of training with with the team and all the access to the locker room and all the facilities. So mm. oh, uh, Providence College was very ethical on that. Mm. Mm.
0: So uh, when you think about your Providence College years, what for you were the highlights, either individual or team? What would you say are the top three highlights of that experience? Well, one was
1: runners-up in 80, 81 at the NCAA Nationals making that team. Two was 1982 making the team again, the 22nd okay and after that probably i won a few new england titles in, in, in uh, steeplechase i think okay. those would be the for uh the three years i ran with providence and you were then, about a sorry 1980s, you were an 1840
0: 1840 steeplechase performer something like that 840 it was my
1: best yeah okay so back then it was i was
0: that was good we didn't have the super spikes back
1: then. So we didn't you know. have the bouncy spikes and we sure could use them jumping hurdles. <laughs> yeah, I bet you could. I bet you could.
0: so what was it of, of those, you know, obviously being on a championship team with some individual accolades connected to it, you know, with that NCAA. You know, and any particular memories of those two teams stand out for you? Sorry, say it again. Uh, of those two cross-country teams, it, were yeah. there any particular memories that, I mean, obviously making the team was a big deal, yeah. and, and being runners-up was something, yeah. but was there anything about either of those experiences that just really stands out to you,
1: um, besides just being on the team? Well, you know, the NCAA Nationals is an incredible race. I mean, you know, you think about it, all the runners finished probably within two minutes of each other. If you blink, you could lose two or three spots in the race, mm. so... Definitely the most, uh, one of the most, ex- two of the most exciting races I ever ran in. Was ah, it. it was okay. just a pure talent that was there. You know what I mean? And my first one, I think I was ninety. I was one hundred and twelve, then I was ninety-two. I think, and I think the last year I was, I got sixty. and I was very happy with that. Mm-hmm. But I was progressing all along. You know what I mean? I would love mm-hmm. to have been able to mm-hmm. run the fourth year because I think that was the year I really started at a new level.
0: Okay, um, so help us with now you're you're migrating because of age cutoffs or what have you you know you're now starting to 83 into 84 you've earned the degree (laughs) you came you got what you kind of came here for right you're getting better as a runner you got a college degree and give us a sense of your thinking uh at at that point in time as what's next
1: well after my my final year at Providence college was was a lot going on um because I got, I started running for Johnson and Wales with Army with John there right remember that John Johnson Wales, and Wales Warren McNulty and all the gang which was a great club in Rhode Island and uh, I also got married when I was in college oh, okay. so in 1983 I got married so I moved off campus and that happened in 19 19- and I ended up running, I think I ran yeah I ran the nationals up in uh, Boston when when the US and attack race was in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I finished 22nd there. It was my first time I realized that I had gone to a higher level than I had in college. So I was kind of bummed out that I couldn't have run mm-hmm. the uh, the last year of college. Because at 84, I actually won the USA track and uh, USA TF cross country at Franklin Park. But because I wasn't a citizen at the time, my name's not in the records for that. But I did win it. And Jimmy Fallon was second. So oh, wow. I forget who. who by he became the champion because uh, he was the first american mm. oh that's interesting okay uh
0: you mentioned 84
1: yeah
0: la games olympics yeah um uh was that in your thinking in any fashion and uh, no I
1: to be honest with you um the times you'd have to run like 828 and you know i started working as well i job okay. like, um, i was going to new york times Square uh, the last three months I was married and, you know, I just didn't have the time. I I, I trained hard. I ran twice a day, but as far as, you know, making Mm. big races, it wasn't that big to me. I mean, I went to Boston only because it was off the road. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be a fun race to be involved in. So, yeah, Um, 83, 84 was all settling down in the house and all that kind of stuff all, all the all the kind of stuff you do it you know when you get here yeah. and, and uh, running road races obviously r-
0: okay so talk talk to us about the roads
1: T- well i think uh i must have won about 20 tvs in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> sorry right remember that tv was the uh, big deal back then and uh most of the time you'd have the tv sold before you left the race it's <laughs> kind of price you know, but oh, then, yeah, the back, from yeah. the 1980s was the golden age in running because guys like, even guys like me could get appearance fees and it was ridiculous, but you weren't going to say no. You know, and that was the golden age. When the Olympics came to uh, LA, there was a lot of money put into the sport in the 80s. And that was, in my opinion, from what I've seen, the golden age, especially in New England.
2: So so it's, let it's, me too bad they didn't have eBay back then. <laughs> <laughs> you could have made a lot of money. Yeah.
0: So, so Charlie, um, if, if you were having a conversation with one of your uh, friends, you know, back home in the '80s, what would you, how would you have described the experience in the states at that time, running related to a a friend who was also running, maybe you know, in Dublin? What was the same? What was different?
1: I think the professionalism. I mean, okay i mean the money that's in in the sport over here and the, and the colleges the collegiate system from my experience and even today it's the backbone of track and field in the world i think because mm, okay i mean not so much for the distance guys you know what i mean but definitely for the sprinters and the weight throwers and jumpers i mean i, I would say i don't know what, i don't know if i've ever done it but i would say the collegiate system probably I don't know, I'm, I'm going to guess here, but maybe 60, 70% of the people that win medals at the Olympic Games, I bet to the Olympic Games, have come through at college in America. I know for Ireland, definitely. Mm, I mean, okay. you look at Ireland success, it was Marcus O'Sullivan, Villanova, Frank O'Mara, you know, Arkansas. Well, John Doherty Patlin, and
0: John Tracy. John Doherty, uh,
1: everybody, even Jeff. Yeah. I mean, if you look at all the Olympians, uh, definitely, no question. They've All gone through so many of them have gone through the state collegiate yeah. system, so yeah. and now that they're offering letting uh athletes uh do their uh you call it sell their likeness, yeah, I think that's going to even drive it, make it even stronger.
0: Well, then the interesting. bouncy shoes and the bouncy shoes, um, you know, because we've had some opinions on the NIL name, image, likeness, uh, right. is it good for the sport? Is it bad for the sport? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I, I think, think no, I see no, I don't have a
1: problem with I think it's fair. You know,
2: Okay. I mean uh-huh.
1: I mean these some of these athletes you know especially in basketball and football, my God, the money they're bringing into the schools
2: uh, what's wrong no, with them a getting point. a piece
1: of it you yeah. Know? yeah there's nothing wrong with uh, athletes. I just wish running runners could get, uh, could get paid as much as the other sports yeah, but yeah. We all know it's uh, it's in the bottom rung when it comes to uh, making money.
0: So okay, so you you are becoming a married man, you know, eighty four, and yet you're still training. I mean, if you're if you're disciplining yourself to run doubles, even while you've got a you're you've got a mortgage and you got a wife and and you know getting into Times Square. I mean, that's that's a busy life.
1: It, it was, were. but I was lucky again because uh, the guy that hired me, um, his name was Al Riccio, and he was into running. And he, I remember the interview. When I walked over. I've got my suit, my tie, shirt on. I walk into his office, and he tells me to hold up a minute. He goes out of the office. He comes back with a six pack and asked me when could I start. <laughs> so Quite I interview. said, "Well, what?" I says, uh, "What's the job?" And he says, "I need an IT manager." And I says, "Well, I've studied IT, but I've never had real life experience." He says, "Don't worry about it. We'll get you sorted." And uh, he, once again, I looked out. He was a great guy. And uh, I worked for him for five years. And okay. even, we even started a track club called, I don't know if you remember, John, the Rich Classic Road Race and the Rich Classic Track Club. Oh, I, yeah. Started, yeah. I started a track club for him to promote the road race. And we had some very mm-hmm. athletes run our race. Okay. Remember, I, think, I think you ran it a few times, John. Bill Rogers yeah. will come yeah. down. We had I remember water. the guy yeah. sent me a thank
2: you note for showing
1: up to the race. I was like, wow, Yeah, that wow. was, was, was a I, class I was, act. It was a great it was a great race and we, we yeah. he asked me to be helping with the race and I did. We got twelve hundred people in Johnston. I, I don't know if they'll ever have a race with twelve hundred oh people gosh, in Johnston, Rhode great. Island again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was it was great.
0: So it, uh, well you you've made a nice segue here, Charlie. Tell us a little bit, or I'm curious about what because it it sounds like you are one of a cohort of people that got this idea to run this five K race in Providence around nineteen ninety. Give yeah. us a little sense, and and that's been an institution. What are we now? It's it's over. Is it over thirty years? It's getting. Yeah, long. it's over.
1: We started in nineteen ninety, and we only missed one year due to COVID. Yeah. So, um, and and at the height of it, I mean, it was ten thousand seven hundred runners signed up one year. I mean,
0: so so what's the history? Yeah, give us a little more of a
1: flavor, if you would. Well, what happened? That's something we probably should have hit on earlier. Um. Back in Ireland, when you finish your running career, it's customary to start giving back to your club and help mm-hmm. both young kids. There wasn't all this Masters runners right now. Like we have, you know, I mean, you know, I mean the Masters runners is great and, and fair play to them all. They're great athletes and they keep going. But I, I like to see people uh, giving their time back to the younger generations to help use their knowledge and their skill to help bring on the younger kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been coaching at North Kingston I still do. Um, since ni- since two thousand and one, I think it was, I started. Mm. So I've been coaching there for over twenty years. But I think it's important that uh, the older athletes, if they can, do what they can do, help out youth programs in the neighborhood and and the school team or whatever. Be a coach if you, if you have the flexibility. So what happened based on what I just told you, giving back, uh, Richard O'Flynn uh, was working with a bank, uh, home loan investment bank. A gentleman called John Murphy, who was a very decent man to the runners as well. He, he gave many of, of the athletes their start in banking. And today, I can I can name them, about six or seven. I'm still in banking thanks to John Murphy. But he he was willing to pull on the race. So Richard O'Flynn was actually working for him at the time, and Richard knew that I was helping out a road race in Johnston, Rhode Island, and I'd done an okay job on it. He asked me if I would help him. So um, in the end, what happened was. Um, Richard got some money from the bank and then we we, we did something kind of a little bit crazy Uh, I came up with an idea that we we were going to give back so I put, it was about 1990 I think it was, so I kicked in $500 to get off the ground Richard kicked in $500 and then we asked all the top athletes in the area who are professionals to kick in $500 I actually charged John Tracy $500 to run the (laughs) race. It was a reversal of what you normally get. And then all all, all these top... There was some great guys. Freddie Miller, uh, Fergal Mullins. There was a bunch of guys. all yeah, all yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked them, Nobody said no. Everybody said, did you do it? I said, really? yeah. Everybody yeah. did and then that. Yeah. And then when I asked Jeff Smith, I said, Jeff says, how much did John Tracy give? I said, John, give us 500, Jeff. He says, all right, I'm going to give you 501. <laughs> That's <laughs> a, a joke me, Jeff. So. <laughs> but you know jeff never flinched. he kicked in like the rest of the guys and at the end of the day when we looked at all the money we had we had about four and a half thousand from all the elite athletes who picked money in and remember back then it was it was uh the athletes got paid not charged (laughs) right so we then then bruce sunderland who was the governor of rhode island at the time he said he, he he was running for he was running for the governor but he he was willing to give us a lot of money but he wanted us to write on a t-shirt, vote for Bruce Sunderland, you know. Mm. And we said, we can't because yeah. that's going to, you know, take off half the population of Rhode Island. So he said, all right. So he ended up giving us, I think it was something like 10, 19-inch TVs or something for prizes. And then we started, we printed up an entry form. And we had weekly meetings with all these elite athletes. And we kept, you know, dishing out the jobs to each other. And everyone coming up with new ideas. And we printed up an entry form. We sent them out. We Got some media exposure from some of the contacts I had from the other race I had. And the first year we launched it, we had four thousand runners show up. You know, we had no idea how to handle four thousand runners because back then it was all the old shoots, if you remember. Mm. And I think it was Granite State Timing was the company we used back then, Bob Peshek. And fair play to Bob (laughs) to handle four thousand runners with uh dip timing was quite an accomplishment. Yeah. That's how it evolved and
0: you all know, a lot of
1: the guys quit, they got moved on in life, and most of the guys went back home. So I ended up holding the stick. So I ended how, up doing yeah, it.
0: But, but how did it, uh, so then, uh, and so some of the money then went to uh, community groups and clubs. And oh, like yeah. Yeah. And Matter of the fact,
1: other. the first charity the first, um, we had uh, was, I believe it was Amos House, which was a food kitchen, soup kitchen in, in, in Providence. And believe it or not, I still donate to Amos House for my races.
2: Oh no That's, kidding!
1: Okay. This That's year, cool. I every race in Providence, I have selected Damon's House as the uh, beneficial because yeah. I like what they do. You know, I mean, they I, you can walk in there and see food being put on the table, and right. people that need a bit of help are getting it.
0: You know, I'm, I'm I'm struck with it's interesting, and so the commonality here is I'm an outsider. I'm a New York State guy. I'm not, you know, I don't okay. grow up here, and, and all this. <laughs> yeah, I Well. <laughs> uh, I married a Rhode Islander, though, so that's my, you know, that's my saving grace, apparently. So th- this notion of, you know, John, we had uh, Bobby Doyle, or we had Jimmy Doyle, and we had the Bobby Doyle Foundation. And I was struck then, and I'm struck now by this notion of giving back, which kind of seems quintessential Rhode Island.
2: In, in, in some Jimmy ways. Doyle is a
1: good example of it, too. Uh, yeah. I've helped Jimmy with his race a little bit too. And uh, Jimmy needs help from me. I'll, I'll always and help Bobby Jimmy. And
2: Bobby gave back.
1: Bobby coached. Yeah, Bobby did so many of Yeah,
0: exactly. And and so, so I was struck with that because it, it's a little bit more um, visible.
1: But well, Rhode yeah. Island is Rhode Island is a small state, mm-hmm. and in, we're probably the only scholastic league system in the whole country that can has all the schools competing against each other at the state championship and you know on a weekly basis. So small, and everybody knows everybody here, and. And, and I've been a coach for, four, what, 23 years now at North Kingston High School. You get you, you create great friendship with other coaches. There's maybe 10 coaches that I started off with 20 years ago that are still coaching. Yeah, And these are great guys, you know. They're just, they give back so much. You know, you have to – well, you can go over and coach for half an hour and walk away, but people like myself and other great coaches are like, Jimmy Kyle, I don't know how Jimmy puts in. You have to play in at least two hours a day, maybe three hours. No, if you want to do the job right. Yeah, that's right. Well, no, I kind of has to agree. go to all those other coaches out there in Rhode Island. I give them all the credit in the world because they're doing great work uh, for the youth of this country.
0: What do you think about the future of the sport as we sit here today, from from your vantage point, basically straddling the European model in some ways with the American yeah. model <laughs> after all of these all these decades here. Are you optimistic? Do you have concerns with, for the sport? Where, where um, I do have
1: concerns. I still love the sport, um, but I love the sport more at um, the local level mm-hmm. because it's going a little bit astray at the at the Olympic and all that level, okay. like and even national levels. So, you know, there's national, like the World Cross Country. I think is one of the best events ever. And now most countries won't send a team because they don't think they're going to do well. Uh-huh. But that's not the point. The point is, if you're going to develop right. athletes in your country, like Ireland, for example, if they don't send, if they, if, if the World Cross was in Australia, they say oh, I was going to cost too much. We can't send a team there. But what incentive does that I give to the youth of the country to say, "Well, what am I training for? What's my goal? Is it only if you think I'm going to win an Olympic medal you're going to send me?" And then you got the damn drug issue that's going on. I mean, that there is, I don't get that at all. I mean, I don't know why athletes are so desperate to do that to their bodies and cheap. I mean, that if you go to the IAF, you'll see about 10 pages of athletes that are banned. Oh, I don't trust it anymore, personally. Yeah. personally you know what I mean?
2: That's yeah. why
1: I say at the local level, and the kids are coming up, I enjoy it more because, you know, I don't think, uh, kind of, you can't say no, but. I would hope that it's not kids in high school doing EPO and taking all this nandolin right. and all this crappy drugs out there that are going around. You and you then, like the
0: purity, you like the purity yeah, I like the purity
1: the... of yeah, yeah, yeah. Those days yeah. back in Ireland, running track meets around grass tracks in our bare feet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That to me is that was pure, pure. Now you got you know, and forget the records. The records now, forget the records. With these new shoes, they have you know. It's um, congratulations to all the guys. I'm delighted to see them. Running well, I, I I like to see a world record as much as anybody. But some of these, I mean, I've worn these shoes and I'm, I'm shocked by them because my average training pace, I'm a nine-minute training pace guy. I put these shoes on, I can easily do 840s without the same effort. So I know they work. Mm. And the times work. I, give them, I got my kids running in, in high school and over 400, they drop a second. Over 800, they drop two seconds
0: really even at the yeah. high school level you're seeing
1: that. yeah yeah the oh, shoes. that's interesting It's the shoes yeah yeah interesting I mean, very 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 interesting
2: yeah
1: overall it's it's still a great sport i wish that the countries around the world would uh send their teams to every kid that qualifies should be sent even if it's a peace mm-hmm. standard let them go mm-hmm. you know what i mean give give the federations give the athletes in each federation an incentive to go and then you got these leaders in, in organizations. Not so much in this country. This country does it the best way. Top Mm. three go. Selectors are not involved. Mm. But over in England and Ireland, you have selectors, and they have favorism. That's why John Doherty ran for Ireland, because he finished touring the trials and they picked Dave Moorcroft over him. And for Ireland, your grandparents were from Ireland. His father and mother were from Ireland, but he ended up running for Ireland and the other thing i see happening too too um i don't like what's going on with countries like qatar and mm. you know getting by these uh buying african basically. athletes yeah and i know what's going on there because i know some of the agents that they shared what's going on with me like turkey for example there's another country i think that shouldn't be allowed maybe it's getting close to the stage where you say you only represent the country you were born in mm. that would take care of that problem
0: well you know, but but here we are. You, yeah, you, know, you are. You're now. What, that's my opinion. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. But but, you know, we've come a long way. We've we've tracked if I've if I'm my math is right. Well, over 40 years of your journey, uh, well, over 40 years, starting 50. at age 12, 50 years now. So we're, <laughs> we're actually right there. Right? See, i am never was good at math. But mm. see, that's why I need a business major to uh, help me out
1: with that. But Bye. of all the, all the countries in, in the world of athletics, there's no question that the United States is the number one country for athletics. I don't care what anyone else says. I think it's the best. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Okay. For the infrastructure,
1: for, from the middle schools, where you have, you know, you got coaches, you everything's paid for. You've got school buses to take the kids to the meet. Compared to Ireland, where you have to raise the money to get the bus and you have to find people to volunteer to coach. Okay, And then you go to high school, you repeat that middle school system, and you go to college, and it goes to a whole new level. So there's no system in the world that can match what's available in this country a Atlantic.
0: Well, I think that is a great moment for us to conclude our conversation um, on a real high note. Uh, it's been the pleasure for Ron Galuli, John Gorman, and myself to have as our guest this afternoon, Charlie Brakey. He has certainly made a difference as a mutter in cross country, uh, as a coach, (laughs) and certainly as a a road race organizer and connoisseur of the sport. And it's been just a, a delight to spend this hour with you on the Runners Reunion podcast. Thank you, Charlie. And we didn't even get to you as the third co-founder of the Runners Reunion.
1: That our your namesake is literally part of the podcast. Oh, that's good. You want to bring up a good point because I've actually we've activated a um a website now, not as much a website, but on our company website, com, there's a link now on the menu to go to the uh hall of fame from the runners reunion. So we're gonna keep that updated right now. Oh excellent. We have a history of everybody gets inducted to the Rhode Island Runners Hall of Fame. Remember, you don't have to be just a Rhode Island people. We look at southern New England as well. Okay, mm-hmm. and
0: that was a and that was a fantastic event that we we mentioned in our our, our first episode. It really was a pleasure. So, uh, we're looking forward now, coming out of COVID, that this does become an annual thing. And so, uh, it will be. Thank you, and and thank yeah. you for that. So
1: again, Thanks for having you guys. I-